Hey everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Races IndyCar Podcast. My name's J.R. Hildebrand, here to reflect on the action from Texas, where Pato Award bagged his first win and earned an F1 test along the way. And Scott Dixon does what he normally does in Texas and picked up another win. They became the third and fourth different winners in as many races this year in the IndyCar series, which is something that I think we've gotten used to, but always crazy to see. And award bagged Chevrolet's first win of the year. So nice to see a little bit of a mix up in the manufacturer standings there as we get going forward. Joining me as ever to break down the action is my co-host Jack Benyon. Fighting a little sleep deprivation over in the UK. How you doing, Jack? Yeah, definitely uh, feeling the effects of the weekend. I, I said that on the last week's podcast that it was going to be a struggle, but to be honest, just desperate to get over to the States and cover some races properly and you know, eagerly awaiting my job so I can come over and, you know, really uh, experience these things in normal hours rather than uh, rather than UK four o'clock in the morning. But yeah, great weekend. Really enjoyed it. Um, you picked out most of the kind of key storylines there in your intro. So that's nice. Um, I think uh, it's probably wise for us to point out at this point that we haven't got any readers questions on this week's episode. Please don't turn off at this stage. We're really sorry about that. But the race has been observing a social media blackout over the course of, of this weekend in solidarity with teams, leagues and sports personalities in a bid to raise awareness in the fight against online hate, discrimination, racism and all that kind of terrible stuff that, that happens on social media at the moment. So that meant we've not been able to collect any of the, the questions that we normally get on online for our episode. But JR and I have loved your feedback from the first uh, few episodes. Really happy with uh, the number of people interacting and we want to answer your questions and, and get your feedback and, you know, hear what you like hearing about on these IndyCar episodes. So please let us know, send us, uh, send us your feedback and make sure you leave us a review as well, which we're always keen to have. I guess, um, you know, the races, it's, it's difficult because we're going to have to try and compact two races into one podcast here, JR, and neither of us are known for our ability to keep things short and sweet, are we? So this is going to be difficult, but let's, uh, I guess race one was a, a fairly straightforward Dixon win with a bit of strategy played in um passing looked a bit more difficult in the kind of cooler conditions um but scott was still absolutely dominant and alex Pillow was right on his tail up until he got kind of taken out in the pit stop phase and and fell back which was a bit disappointing but we're definitely going to talk about scott mclaughlin later in the show as well because he took the uh, second place which was a big deal for a rookie to get a second on uh, on his oval debut so that was uh, that was pretty mega and then in race two Pato just kind of like a man possessed wherever he was on the track. He was, he had busy hands and he was making crazy overtaking moves past two cars in turn one and two on the, on the second to last restart or the last restart. And that was a, a big part of his win. Um, and also chased down Joseph Newgarden, who looked pretty strong all the way through the race and had a, a very interesting weekend, but both races kind of intriguing strategy, a lot of fuel saving going on. Um, you know, a bit, a bit easier to pass in the second race than the first, I think, from from watching along. But uh, yeah, I guess that kind of uh, that kind of sums things up. So I guess Jr. We, we've got to kick this off with Pato because the last episode we did, we spent a lot, quite a bit of time talking about you know IndyCar Formula One prospects and, and things like that. And since then, make sure you check out the hyphenrace.com where we did a feature on you doing your Force India test back in 2009, which is so fun. And if you want to hear about yeah, a little throwback. Yeah, if you want to hear about Adrian Sutil's boots getting sawed off or you want to hear about <laughs> JR walking from a B&B to Woking and surprising a security guard at the McLaren factory, then that features for you. But yeah, you know, Colton obviously kind of started all this, didn't he really, with his uh, dominant win at St. Pete last time out. And, you know, since then, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, IndyCar drivers to F1 and, and things like that. And now, you know, Pato's won at the perfect time to to kind of get that test off off McLaren. Pre-season, Zach, Mar- Zach Brown promised him a test after Abu Dhabi if he won a race this year. And obviously he's bagged his, his first IndyCar win. And it's the first win for Aaron McLaren SP since they joined at the start of last season as well. So I guess, you know, how exciting is it to have that, you know, test in the bag? Because it's something we've talked about before in terms of, just as simple as crossover tests. You know, I think that's something we're both really behind and would love to see a lot more of. But, you know, judging off that Herter talk that we had last week, you know, there was a lot, a lot of excitement around that, but also a lot of disappointment at the kind of reality of the situation we're in at the minute where it's, you know, incredibly unlikely that a driver would get an F1 test or a drive. And then suddenly the week after O'Ward gets the test. So that's kind of great news, I guess. And how important is that for IndyCar, do you think? I think it's great just for everybody that's involved, to be honest with you. And it's good for motorsport. You know, we talked about that a little bit offline, just the idea that these guys being, especially young guys that are at the beginning of their IndyCar careers in this in this context, 
getting a chance just to have the experience of going over there and doing it. You know, I think we, we talked about with Colton and and it's certainly my point of view that for him, it, it, it'd be different if, if it was Scott Dixon in this discussion, but Colton and Pato, they're both young guys just to be able to get the chance to go drive a modern F1 car in a, in a relatively serious environment is just a really cool opportunity to have. I mean, that's, that's really when I reflect back on when I got to do the three day test, splitting it with Paul Duresta. Um, I did have a lot of fun chatting with you about that, about that. So please do go have a look at it. But, um, you know, that's, that was really my main takeaway from it, particularly looking back now is just the, the opportunity to go do it at all was really eye opening and gave me a fresh perspective on, on F1 and, what I was doing in the States and, and just sort of my trajectory in racing and, and all that kind of stuff. So for these guys to be able to, we, it's interesting. I even think about it in the IndyCar context, uh, with Indy lights drivers that there have been, there've been, we kind of go through these ebbs and flows where there's incentive for IndyCar or formula one teams to get more young drivers in the car. They get more test days or something, uh, by, by not having their typical race drivers running. And from my point of view, there's never anything wrong with that. There's, there's never a negative outcome from these kinds of situations coming up. So I'm really glad just to see that Zach is, we've seen him on social and and he's been pretty vocal over the last month or so about, frankly, I think since, since this, since he made this deal with Pato, but also including Colton in this conversation, um, I know that they've had some discussions prior to this, just from from chatting with Colton about it and and whatever else. Um, he's been pretty vocal about the fact that there's not those incentives in place to to just create these opportunities for young drivers, particularly young drivers that are not in the obvious F two, you know, kind of uh, you know GP two over the last few years have been in those categories. Um, and so I just think it, it's really great to see him just, you know, sort of taking taking it into his own control and taking some responsibility and putting his putting his money where his mouth is, you know, to some degree, and uh, creating these opportunities for these guys. And and I think Zach is Zach is one of those guys within motorsport that also just likes to see motorsport be interesting too. Uh, that's that's always it, from watching from the outside. That's always seemed like his mo. He just wants to. He's he's got a marketer's mind, um, you know, and and obviously that's that's where he comes from. So I think it's just cool to see all of this happening. It's so hard to say if anything, if there's anything material that'll come of any of this for for any of these guys. But awesome for all of us to be able to look forward to it for Pato it's an incredible opportunity for him to go show in another arena what he's got. And if you look at just the competitiveness of IndyCar right now, I have no doubt that guys like Pato and Colton, if you're a race winner in IndyCar right now on any type of track, you'll get in an F1 car and certainly not embarrass yourself. Uh, so I think that with, a, with the right amount of testing and simulator time and all that kind of stuff for them to get used to it, I expect for them to be very close to the pace very quickly. And they've got plenty of, you know, Pato's got plenty of time to kind of get physically prepared and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, looking forward to seeing it and hopefully, hopefully the start of more of that to come going forward. I think we've seen a lot of trickle down of the, not just the, the equipment that formula one uses, but also the, the kind of, um, you know, the, the way teams work and how they operate. I think we've seen a lot of trickle down over the past, you know, since before, you know, around the time of your test and before, you know, a lot of the kind of technology that we take for granted in, in IndyCar and other championships below Formula One now is, you know, wasn't around then. So I think we're getting a lot of trickle down of technology and other championships are becoming much more relevant to F1. And I think, you know, the drivers now in IndyCar would have a, a good chance of getting in and at least, you know, working in an environment that they would at least understand, um, but also, you know, have a good good idea of what was expected of, of them in the car and understand the majority of the, even just the silly things like the functions on the steering wheel and, and stuff like that. You know, I think that they, they would be well prepared. But yeah, you know, I think the only thing I'd add is I think 
you know, and I know you agree with me on this because we've we've spoken about it off air. But I, you know, I think it's fine that you know if Pato goes over there and has a great F1 test, then that's fantastic and it's good for him and it's good for for IndyCar as well. But you know, this doesn't necessarily mean that you know Pato's career is a failure if he doesn't now get to F1 or, or something like that. You know, it's fine for these guys to. To, to stick with IndyCar, you know, wrote this last week in, in a feature about Colton Hurt. And, you know, I, I don't want to see him go to Formula One and drive the Haas as it is now around the back of the grid and achieve nothing. And then, you know, potentially struggle when he comes back to America, you know, say he does two years in the Haas, just for, you know, as a hypothetical example, struggles, um, you know, maybe matches his teammate. Maybe he's not quite up to speed because his teammate's better prepared than he is for, for the European tracks and, and the circuits. And then, you know, comes and struggles to 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 find his flow again back in in America. That'd be really sad to see, in my opinion. I think, you know, someone like Colton has established himself in one of the top teams in America, has got a really long IndyCar future ahead of him. And for me, that's fine. You know, we don't need to worry about that. That is a great thing for for a young driver like him. And, you know, we don't need to see Formula One as, you know, a mark of how good a driver is from IndyCar because they're totally different. And you know, we, we heard Colton say after the race yesterday that IndyCar is the best racing in the world and it's hard to disagree with him at the moment given, you know, what we've seen across the first four races. Um, it's obviously a big and bold statement and we can talk about that all day as well. But yeah, I think, you know, the just the the, the performances that Pato has put in and, and Colton as well and, and Joseph even, you know, he's edging towards that kind of, he's unfashionably old for F1 now, but he's still, you know, very much good enough. Um, you know, it'd be great to see more of them get a test, but I think Pato is going to be a good litmus test to see how that goes. So I guess let's move on from, from Pato and talk a little bit about the the other key moment of that race, which was the starting crash. And I'm really interested to hear some of your thoughts on that, because I think you'll have some, some great insight into, into what happened. But for anyone who didn't see the race, basically the, the start was kind of visibly slow. Um, you know, the start of the race, the, the actual start, and then there was a bit of a kind of concertina effect further back. I think uh, Pietro Fittipaldi was the first person to kind of make contact. He clipped uh, Sebastian Bourdais into a spin and that just caught up four or five cars behind, including Alexander Rossi. Um, Connor Daly was sent on his roof. Um, so great to see that the aero scheme was doing its job and really happy to see that implemented because it's just another example of how important that device has been since it's come in to, to keeping these guys safe. But what did you make of, firstly, the, the pace of the start? And, you know, Connor said, we've had too many crashes on restarts in IndyCar, especially on ovals in, you know, I tend to agree with him. We had the, you know, we had a similar situation at the Indy 500 where Oliver Rasky had the big crash into the wall and, you know, had a, a really hard hit from that. And that really kind of ruined the rest of his season with the, the concussion. And then we had Gateway as well, didn't we? Where we had that kind of um, slower speed, kind of just it, almost exactly the same as what happened at Texas almost. Um, and, and Connor said, it's something that needs to be looked at now, but where do we kind of go with it? Because, Graham Rahal after the race said, you know, whether you're at 60 miles an hour or 160 miles an hour, that's a constant speed, but that doesn't really fix the problem having a, having a constant speed, does it? So, you know, is there a solution out there? Because I, I kind of struggle to see how you kind of fix something like that happening as a, you know, a victim of the circumstances of, of oval racing and you could make the car single file on the restart, but no one wants to see that from an entertainment point of view, do they? So, you know, where do you kind of go with this? Do you think, do you have any kind of, thoughts on how this could be improved or or where they could take this it's a good question and it's a hard one to answer I, I think it's worth pointing out just for the listeners that in oval racing you know the cars just aren't really set up to be able to slow down that quickly the way that they are on a road course so that's part of what's going on here is that you've just got a, a really unique format and setups on the cars and, and all this kind of stuff they they work well once they're up to speed at 200 miles an hour they work really poorly, um, even at pit lane speeds. You know, you see guys, you know, jostling and and about to lose it just coming into the pits all the time. It's basically just because the car is not really making a downforce. The tires aren't loaded up the way that they're supposed to be. You know, the tire is designed to be taking a lot of load at you know, through a you know two hundred mile an hour through a banked corner. Um, once you take that load away and that downforce and and the track grip. Um, it just doesn't really want to do anything. You, you get a very numb feeling through the steering wheel and the pedals, uh, in terms of what the car is doing and, and kind of where it's pointed and what it's, what's happening. When I look at that restart, it, it, it ended up being Pietro that caused that sort of started the chain reaction. It could have easily been somebody else. It just, it looked almost inevitable that it was going to happen. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to armchair 
sort of quarterback it from, from, uh, from a few steps removed, you know, I guess I look at Texas and it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's all just going to be single file basically through turn one. Anyway, I'm not really sure what the enormous rush to get there three wide is, but I think one of the things that I, the only thing that I could really think about, cause Connor was right. When I was listening to his interview, I was kind of like, man, that's, that's true that we do have this type of thing happen too frequently. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't really have this kind of thing happen at all, particularly on the, on the actual race start on restarts. It's a little trickier sometimes just because it is much more in the hands of whoever the leader is. And and you want to be able to give the leader of the race a chance not to be a sitting duck. And so that, and oval racing with the draft and how far you go to the first corner and all that kind of stuff, you, you kind of have to, I think, allow for there to be some difference in or variation in where the leader starts and how fast they're going. And uh, you know, all of those sort of various factors. I think for the race start, the only thing that I can kind of think of is, you know, Indianapolis, we we pretty rarely have this happen. And I think a big part of that, you know, is despite the fact that we're starting three wide, which is altogether more sketchy in terms of just how much room you've got. And you're definitely going to get hung out on a weird line and and all that kind of stuff going into turn one, going faster because it's a longer straightaway. There's a big acceleration into the first corner there's a very clear set of rules and etiquette basically just around how far away, how far the rows are apart from each other. And that's something that's dictated on the initial starting grid. You start, I think they're supposed to be hundred feet apart. And so you start at that distance when you're sitting on the grid, when you first get going, you have a pretty clear picture in your head of how far away that is from the row in front of you you know, as the starts getting closer, that you're going to get penalized if you get too close to the row in front of you. And that frankly, just the way the race start works, you don't want to be that close to the row in front of you. Makes me wonder if there's a way just to get the rows further spaced so that we have this happen less often. And I, I would guess that if you got all the drivers in a room together and looked at all of this together, you'd say, okay, well, if we've all got to deal with the same thing at these types of circuits, these are not places where you're gaining a huge advantage by being closer to the cars immediately ahead of you. Everybody's, everybody's going to bunch back up or kind of get figured out the, in the same fashion, one way or another, going through the first couple of corners. That's really the only thing that I can think of to try to try to resolve this or, or make it a little bit less likely to happen on the actual race start itself. Otherwise it's, it's hard not to, as a, as a driver, and I've certainly been there in these kinds of situations and a lot of close calls as the field gets stacked up, there's, I think tweaking the little things that we end up kind of talking about, like, Oh, the, it was, it was late or, whatever they were starting. They were, it was slower than we thought it was supposed to be or whatever. Those kinds of things to sort of to Graham's point, you can make a, you can take a pretty big swing at some of that. And it doesn't fundamentally change the likelihood that this happens that dramatically. So uh, my thought would be keep the rows space further apart, get everybody on board with that so that everybody understands why, why it's happening and how it affects the show and how it affects their teams, particularly in these double header situations. I think it's, it's a, if you brought a good, a good solution to the drivers and the teams, that was going to actually going to really reduce the risk of this happening. I think they'd all go for it just because everybody ends up being negatively affect impacted it, it, the series does certainly just in terms of kind of how it all comes off. Uh, but the teams and drivers, you know, there's, there's, there's no reason why you should have a bunch of guys out of the race before it even gets started. And, you know, the Alexander's interview, he was remarkably cool and collected after the whole thing. I think, that uh, shows his ability to just when things are in some fashion out of his control to let that go rather than being super pissed about it. Um, you know, it's just, but that kind of stuff just shouldn't be happening. And, and um, you know, we should be able to have some races like that where you see fast guys that are at the back for whatever reason, claw their way back up to the front. That's what, that's what makes races like Texas enjoyable most of the time. So um, that's, that's my two cents on it anyway. While you're on Rossi, I think it's interesting to to touch on him briefly because he kind of kickstarts another just topic of 
conversation about the weekend that was kind of off track, which was obviously the the rain delay affected things quite heavily on the Saturday. So we had we ended up having a longer practice than was on the schedule, but qualifying was cancelled because rain had pushed practice back by 90, over 90 minutes. So we lost qualifying, which meant the field was set by the point standings as per the IndyCar rules. Um, and then Alexander kind of brought that up in his interview that you mentioned in, in, in the post-race there, um, you know, talking about how he thought that it made no sense that we didn't have a qualifying session on Sunday because the time was there to to fit that in. Kind of interested to hear what you think about that. I think, you know, it's it's a tricky one because you almost don't want IndyCar kind of micromanaging, you know, the rule book with rules for every race. And in other races, there'll be support races and, you know, different aspects of the weekend going on where you can't just drop a, a qualifying session in. And also, do you want to kind of surprise the teams with a kind of, errant qualifying session um so so that was a difficult thing i think i did think after the race whether you could maybe set the, the grid for the second race based on the result from the first race which would potentially be more accurate but even then you would have the same problem that you had with rossi being at the back of the grid he was at the back of the grid in the second race because he was low in the points because he's had a poor start to the season but then if you set the grid on the first race result you would have sebastian bourdais at the back of the grid and he didn't deserve to be there because he was taken out of the first race after running seventh. So that necessarily wouldn't solve the problem for me. So I don't know. Do you think we should have badly for him, but either way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that wasn't symptomatic of the rules, was it? But uh, yeah, I mean, do you think we should have had a qualifying session on the Sunday or were you quite happy with how everything worked and how it went? I mean, there's two very easily de- debatable sides of this sort of question one is do you leave it just as close to how it was intended to be as possible which is what they did basically uh that reduces just the general you know variation in schedule and and planning and all that kind of stuff that the teams are dealing with the other side of it is i think if you're going to make a change like that if you're going to say hey actually now we're going to qualify tomorrow for tomorrow's race there has to be a little bit of forethought into the willingness to do that or the ability to do that at all, which I, I don't know going into these kinds of weekends. I think particularly with, with our sort of COVID situation last year, there's been a lot of changes. There've been a lot of things that are abnormal. Uh, I think we're, I think the, the feeling that I get is we're trying to just get as close to being back on track and kind of back to normal as possible and, and reduce the risks as much as possible, as much as I would say, yes, qualifying would have been a nice additional session to have there at the same time, you know, guys reckon qualifying. So it's not, if, if the idea is just, let's try to have as, you know, as few cars packed up early, uh, and in, you know, no longer in one piece as possible, then I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree that adding a qualifying session uh, on a track that's changing, that there hasn't been a lot of practice makes the most sense necessarily. I don't know that that really solves that problem w- with the benefit of hindsight. You could say, okay, for some of the guys that are contenders and this or that, but it, it doesn't take, doesn't fundamentally change how that race started in my opinion, just changes the order of where guys were at. I guess the other piece of it is, in my mind, what comes to or, or what comes to mind for me more is, is that what the drivers and teams would have wanted to do? And if that's the case, and you can get a consensus on these kinds of things in terms of the race format on a weekend within some realm of, you know, it, 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 there being some boundary conditions for what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. Obviously, they're not going to just because they've got the whole day it doesn't make sense to just start adding practices and qualifying and changing the whole schedule, but. If you could get a consensus, the teams and drivers want to go qualify, then I think the the ability to come to that consensus is something that would be great for the series to work towards. Just having a process to figure that out, because in my opinion, watching these events from the outside, you know, as a fan, as a competitor, when you've got all day, there's not there's no particular reason why they can't change the schedule, and so if it if, if in an already sort of mixed up weekend, they want to try to make it a little bit better and there's a consensus for how to make that better, even if it's just for the teams and drivers heading into the race, uh, you know, to improve the competitive product from their side, 
then I'm all for that. So I think in this situation, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't in terms of changing the schedule last minute. But going forward, I think it'd be a, it'd be a great thing for that process to be defined in terms of, okay, there's the off chance that on rained out weekends or things where there's crazy scheduling stuff going on that we might want to adjust the schedule here and that there's a reason why that can improve the on-track product for the race that obviously everybody cares the most about. Um, you know, I think that's that's totally reasonable to to have that as an option in the bag. Totally agree. And I think it's worth, it, it is a good point to make that, you know, it, it, it needs to be with the consensus of the teams in this case, because there's so much stuff that goes on over a race weekend now. And, you know, for me as a racing fan, I'm not that bothered about the sponsor commitments and all that kind of stuff, but I, I acknowledge the importance that sponsors have obviously on the sport. And, you know, if you're just going to start whacking qualifying sessions in willy nilly when teams have arranged to do, you know, things with sponsors or they've, you know, they've got, you know, serious plans over the course of a weekend, then, you know, it, it is difficult to do that on the fly. I think if they know, if they know it's coming, then it's fine, isn't it? But if, you know, if you're going to start, you know, jerking teams around like that, they need to be in on that decision and, and making that decision with IndyCar and under the circumstances. I think IndyCar did the right thing. One of the people who didn't suffer too much out of the qualifying situation was Scott McLaughlin because he started 15th in the first race, judging, you know, from his, uh, you know, that's where he was in the championship heading into the race. Managed to turn that into second with some some crafty strategy by Team Penske and also just a robotic drive, really, is how I'd describe that, to be honest. He was just did not put a foot wrong today. And for a, you know, for a rookie making his uh, overall debut, it's obviously nice for him to have had three Texas tests before the, the weekend. But still, you know, that doesn't make you a Texas veteran, does it? And it's a very tricky track to get right, especially when we start talking about the you know, the aero changes that came in for this weekend probably made things a little bit more stable, but we still had the lack of a second lane and it was very difficult to pass on, especially in that first race that we're kind of discussing for Scott. So what impressed you most about his performance? Um, was it like me? Did you just kind of, just kind of impressed by the almost, I don't want to say boringness because it makes it sound like I'm making it negative, but it, it was just a very uneventful, but brilliant drive to, to, to second. And he wasn't able to challenge Dixon at the end, but I don't think anyone was expected him to given how, you know, superior Dixon was in that race. He just looked like a different, like he was almost like everybody else was driving a different car to him, didn't he, over the course of that race. But but Scott, you know, I thought was was pretty good. How, how did you feel about his race? Yeah, absolutely. I felt the same as you. I think just impressed by his composure the whole way through. And part of that, I think that he, he showed a degree of patience and just competitive experience, I think, coming from supercars. And I think about, you know, you think about supercars as the championship, it is as tight. And I mean, if there's somewhere that's close to IndyCar in terms of just how closely, how close together you're racing weekend to weekend, how tight the field is, all that kind of stuff. I, I think about supercars as one of those places. You're just constant. It's, you got to extract everything out of the car. You have to you can't put a wheel wrong at any point, you know, pit stops during the race, qualifying throughout practice to maximize everything that you've got going on. I think that that, although the cars are totally different, I think just being in that environment is serving, serving Scott well and has prepared him well for the degree of competitiveness that he's experiencing here. Because watching that race, yeah, you felt like he was a vet, that he was just doing all of the little things right, which is... At a place like Texas, that's a huge percentage of how you finish well in those kinds of situations. And sometimes you do all those little things right, and the car is just not there, or you don't nail the strategy, and there's it sort of screws you the other way around, that there's not a lot else that's available for you to do to improve where you end up in the race. You know, we saw just it's it was a one-lane track outside of the odd restart, basically, uh, there's not enough with it being a one lane track. Once the tires start to dig a little bit, there's just nothing you can do. Basically, there's not enough time between the single lanes through the corners on the straightaways to to really make an impression. But Scott just he did he he did everything you could possibly expect an IndyCar driver to do well in those situations and wasn't wasn't caught off guard by anything in particular. Like you felt like he was, I felt watching him, like he was prepared at least enough for how things were going to change over the course of the race. I think a, a good thing for him that it was a little bit cooler, you know, you didn't have as dramatic a drop off in tires and, and those kinds of things. Texas, 
oftentimes, even when the track is basically the same, uh, if it's hotter and we saw this a little bit on, on Sunday, it gets hotter. You start to experience that deg. The cars start to be more different when you get in traffic and being 10 cars back versus five cars back is a much more extreme difference in terms of how the car feels and where you're having to put it on the track. Maybe in the first race, Scott didn't have to deal with that quite as much. You know, the car was, it was a little more consistent in terms of what he was able to do with it, but just to have, have that composure about him in that situation was really impressive to me. He's obviously got the skill in the car. He's got a lot of great people around him. Like he's continued to say, having Rick Mears as uh, as someone to lean on in these kinds of situations, let alone championship winning teammates that have been in this car at this track for a long time. It'd be hard to think of a better scenario, but even still super impressed by the job he did by, by just the job he did, basically, if we're going to call it that, you know, not necessarily with any particular skill, but just getting in the car, being able to pull that all, pull that all together not make mistakes along the way and capitalize on the, on the opportunities when they rose. Alex Palou poised to have a couple of potentially really great results here. Didn't quite end up delivering the way that we saw Dixon do it, but was, but was there all weekend. Uh, he was our points leader heading into Texas comes out in third. What did you think about his run? Just watching, watching and, and kind of observing through the weekend. I was impressed actually, uh, from the, from the perspective of it didn't get a lot of time at Texas last year. I remember how the schedule was one day, um, and he got taken out in the race by VK's crash. Uh, so, you know, that was his, that was the first, his first IndyCar race. It was on an oval and he didn't get the full race distance in. So he's coming to Texas with a little bit, probably a, a little bit less experience than maybe some of the other guys who did the race last year as, as rookies. I think his performance at the Indy 500 was one of the main reasons why Ganassi took him on, which might sound a little bit stupid because he's obviously a well-known circuit racer and, you know, got a great background in things like Super Formula, which... Is another one of those championships out there that if you're doing well in Super Formula, then you are a top-notch driver and you're probably good enough to race anywhere in the world. So, you know, the fact that he was winning races and pole positions there is, you know, a good sign. But his the way he attacked the Indy 500, I think the way the way he structured his his work over the course of the Indy 500 really impressed Ganassi, and that's one of the reasons why they went with him in the end because they were so impressed with that. And he did, you know, he did crash in the race, fair enough. But you know, he was he was mega in qualifying. He was just generally brilliant over the, over the course of the the buildup of the event. And, you know, it was, uh, it was very frustrated to see him go out of the race, but I think, you know, that what Ganassi saw there, they were impressed with. And I think to be as close as he was to Dixon all weekend, you know, knowing how good Dixon is at Texas and especially over the last two races is, is pretty phenomenal. I think it's worth considering, obviously Ganassi didn't do the Texas test pre-season. So they hadn't run on this, on this tire before this weekend. So a new tire for Alex, bit of a tricky Texas last year. And, you know, that's, it's, it's just very, very tricky to come into an oval like Texas and be competitive when you don't have the level of experience with the people and you've missed the preseason test where the tire has been used and this aero configuration. So I think that says a lot about how good Dixon was because he'd not done that either and still managed to run away with the first race really comfortably. But Polo was, you know, half a second, or a second within Dixon at all times when they were running one, two pretty much in both races, which was a lot of the first half of both of the two races. And then he lost all his spots in the pits on, on both occasions. So I think that again, highlights how good Dixon's nine careers. We know how good they are in the pits. They're just phenomenal every year, aren't they? But you know, the, the pit stops under caution in both those races was so important and Dixon's crew delivered on, on all of them really. And uh, you know, it's just uh uh, a little bit unlucky for Polo that his, his pit strategy played out like it did. When all these guys are so close together, you know, we, we talk about how, how close the manage, margins are on track, but they're also so close in, in pit lane as well. And you can you can have the slightest, tiniest little error and you've dropped three or four places because, you know, if everyone nails the pit stop and you're the, you're the only one who doesn't, then, you know, it's a big loss. So I think people might think it was odd that we picked out Polo of all the people to talk about over the course of the Texas weekend because of his results. But when you dig into his performance, I think, you know, he's come out of what would, what potentially he was marking out as probably being a difficult weekend for him for two races at Texas. And he's come out third in the championship, having gone in first. 
I think that's a fantastic result. He'll be, I think he'll be absolutely over the moon about that. And uh, I think that's a good sign for for things to come for him. Moving on quickly, JR, let's talk about Newgarden because we picked him up briefly earlier when we were talking about Bourdais and uh, kind of interested to get your take on that incident in the first race because I, f- I found that really interesting. I thought there was some, you know, there was some quite dicey driving through through the first race, really. Um, especially Jack Harvey kind of got the brunt of that one from the TV guys, um, kind of picking him out for for a bit of not ridicule, but uh, you know, they picked out him being quite over aggressive on the on the Rossi and uh, the Ray Hall moves as well, and. Um, you know, they called him to the IndyCar called him to the hall, didn't they, overnight to have a chat with him about his, you know, kind of defensive moves and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, with Newgarden, the the kind of incident with Bourdais, how did you see that? Uh, for me, just watching the onboard, just thought like totally unavoidable from from Newgarden. Herter had checked up so much because he was coming to pits. Bourdais was going to pit too, and it was just a concertina effect where Newgarden, you know, couldn't avoid Bourdais in my, in my opinion. But obviously they. They saw that fit to to penalise him in in that scenario. As a driver watching that on board, you know you can you can attest to being in both of those positions. You've been taken out like Bordeaux, and you've probably unavoidably taken people out in your time as well. So you know how did you kind of see that one from the from the TV cameras? Yeah, I was surprised that he got penalised for it. Uh, obviously, you know you don't want to be in Bordeaux. Bordeaux is totally not not responsible for that in in any way shape or form nothing really he could do Uh, to me it's just sort of a function of the way that the track was the track runs everybody's stuck just in a in a line there basically following each other through the corner there's not really anywhere to go it was approaching corner exit you know maybe there's a little bit more room but you just have no idea really what's going on and once you get i would say for sure. Once you get that close to the guy in front of you in that kind of a situation, you know, Joseph's got Joseph's basically just trying not to completely lose it himself and take everybody out at that point. When you're closing up on a car, even at that, you know, even if they're only going, maybe they're going 180 or something at that point, because they're starting to check up and slow down. The brakes don't do you know, as soon as you hit the brakes, the car just scrubs more, you know, the steering is completely light you've got no you know you saw even once he got through it he got up a little bit towards that little the last bit of the pj1 and almost lost it himself up against the wall joseph did got totally squirrely up against the wall so you just think how how low grip that whole environment is there at that point once you've got cars stacked up and they're punching a big hole in the air there's just there's like nothing you can do if you're not if you're not seeing that coming five or 10 seconds before it ever even starts to happen, which you just, to me, you just kind of can't ask guys to do that. So watching it for me, it was very much all just a function of the way the track was raced and the lack of the ability to have somewhere to go in in an evasive maneuver situation. Obviously totally unfortunate for Sebastian, Uh, unfortunate for, for everybody who was, caught up in it i didn't really think that that was in any particular sense um a huge fault of new gardens for for being he was just he was just happened to be the guy that was there when that all jammed up for him otherwise you know he had a pretty strong weekend this is a this is a track where frankly even when he's won the race i've rarely thought that they were actually the absolute outright fastest car They've done a really good job of strategy here over the years, and he's very good at Texas. I mean, he's uh, Joseph. It's a, it's the type of place for him that just goes to show why he's a championship winning driver because he just manages to to get the thing into the right spot and make the moves when they count. You know, in the second race, it was very clear, and and the the broadcast crew did a good job of picking it out that Pato was just better. You could sort of tell, you could tell for me, the thing that was apparent watching it was that he was just basically able to stay tight coming out of turn two, that he was one of the only cars that could be on throttle, be committed back to throttle and keep the, you know, hold the exit of the corner a little bit to get that little bit of clean air as the cars in front of him were starting to wash up the track. It was interesting watching it for me that the drivers that were in front of him weren't be weren't more aggressively trying to play defense basically like 
staying tight, even if their cars weren't doing it that well, just to give him, give Pato the arrow wash, basically to force him into their wake earlier in the corner. Um, if I'd have, I think looking at it and thinking about it from a driver's perspective, I would have been trying as hard as I could, if I was in front of him to be running the white line everywhere, because by giving him that extra six or eight inches down in the bottom of the track, he's just getting a little bit of clean air. It's allowing him to run closer to you, uh, without the, you know, without kind of any particular downside to being that close um allowed him just to pounce it was an interesting cat and mouse at the end of the second race just in terms of the fuel save situation um you know i i was i i was i'd had the feeling in the back of my mind while we were watching that with 30 to go that pato was just gonna go full wick for a couple laps and make it happen because it seemed pretty clear to me particularly while Joseph or whoever the leader was over the course of that race, while they were saving fuel that he, that, that Pato just had the car to get by and probably get by without having to take five swings at it. You know, that he was, he was able to put the car in some places that were going to get him good exits, going to get him a good run with real acceleration off the corners. And just because, because he was the only guy that was able to run tight the whole time he was running tight, through the corner and, and he was able to keep it tight off the corner at a place like that, you know, same as Indianapolis. I mean, I, I, although the tracks are different the setups are totally different. If a guy can do that at the speedway, they're going to go to the front because it's the same thing that matters. If you can just get the car to finish the corner, you just get, you, you get that acceleration, you get that little bit of pop, you know, off, off the exits onto the straightaways without a bunch of scrub in it at the same time. So it really, you can see it in the speed trace and you can feel it in the car that it just, accelerates off and sucks up um that when when he and new when when he was behind new garden i was just kind of thinking like man he just he just has to go full rich for like one or two laps and he's going to get this done and it it struck me just with the lines there running that joseph probably didn't have the car to do the same thing back to him and that pato probably could and i don't know if this is exactly what happened but Pato could probably oversave for a couple of laps to kind of make up for, you know, being aggressive for a lap or two and, uh, and end up on top. So in the end, it was kind of a non-issue. He just got to the lead and, and took off. And that to me was, was indicative just of, of both the job that he was doing. You know, you saw him, uh, you know, save himself a few times to, to be in that position uh, he was the only driver to me that was even really testing the waters in some of those places. So you, you just got the, I got the feeling watching it that he knew what he had and he was very confident that he was going to be able to use it when it, when it counted and he did. And uh, you know, that was, that was cool to see, but you know, back to Joseph, I think a, a, a Penske, a, a, a very Penske esque weekend for him and something that we've gotten used to him seeing. So it doesn't, didn't surprise me at all that he was, you know, he was one of my picks going into the weekend as somebody who I definitely thought could, could, uh, could pick up a win. So for him to get back on the podium feels very much like his championship is sort of back on track or, or getting back on track. You know, what's, what's your perspective on that as we head into the, the, the real month of May, I guess, and uh, looking at the point situation just overall, but particularly with Joseph in mind. The key month away, because it was basically what decided the championship last year, because the double points that even though Newgarden finished fifth in the 500 and Dixon was second, the points difference, because it's double points, you know, basically it was the decider for, for Dixon winning the championship, you think about it, which I don't think the Indy 500 should be double points, but let's not get into that right now. We'll do, uh, yeah, Newgarden. I, I was really... Given what happened at Barber in the first race, obviously um, you can go back and listen to our episode about Barber breaking all that down, but obviously crashed out on the first lap. Given that, to be fourth in the championship after four races is pretty decent going. But he is also 37 points down on Dixon at this point. And I think that is okay based on the fact that we've had two races at Texas, which when I was kind of looking at the calendar before the season, I was thinking, all right, you know, Joseph's probably going to do well at Barber. Um, which obviously didn't happen, but history tells you that Joseph is going to go well at Barber. And then Dixon is going to have two races at Texas, which is going to be two top fives, 100%, you know, unless something really bad happens. So 
I think if you said to Joseph at the start of the season, you're going to be 37 points behind, I think he'd be disappointed. But I think if you digest it in the the kind of scenario that he's crashed out of one of the races and Dixon hasn't, and that he's still only 37 points behind, I think that's pretty decent going. And I think he's still, you know, I think he's still uh, in in the frame for for making that uh, a Dixon Newgarden, you know, fight to, to the end of the season. Just going back to the points, I think it's interesting to point out um, Pato jumped up to second. So we've spoken a lot about his adversity as well. He finished 19th at St. Pete and, you know, he's up in second in the points. And, you know, just based on what you were, you know, I didn't want to really go back too much into Pato because I think we've discussed him, you know, quite a lot on this episode. But I think it's, it was interesting what you were saying. And I think no one in that race was able to put moves together at both ends of the track on the same lap. So if someone attempted to move and didn't pull it off, they needed another lap to set it up again. Whereas Pato, when he did Joseph, he failed the first time. And then on the same lap at the next end of the track, he took it then. So I think it was really significant that it was 25 laps to go. They took the lead. I think that was all planned because I think they knew exactly what they had in that, you know, as soon as the, as soon as the pace was back up after that last caution and that, you know, Pato could feel the car underneath him. I think they knew exactly what they had. And I think that was all planned for him to take the lead on, on that lap. Cause it's, you know, 25 to go. It's a nice round number, isn't it? For a strategist, you've got to be happy with that to take the lead then. So yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that was all planned. And I think the, the performance, it seems like to me that when they get it right, Pato and, and the team, their, their upside is incredible. And if they can add some consistency to it, then, you know, it's been bizarre to watch because every race we talk about Pato's hands and it was the, it was the case again in Texas where, you know, his, his hands are so fast and you just feel like he can save anything. And he's driving on the ragged edge and it looks slow. He's that much on the edge because you just think, how is he maintaining any sort of speed with the amount of, steering input that's going into that car you know it's, it looks bizarre compared to what we are kind of conditioned to think is fast when you're watching an onboard but you know that he, he just extracts so much out of that car and you just think if they can add some some consistency and just get a little bit sharper on the strategy and a little bit sharper on pit road when it counts which they were very good at, at texas in fairness um got to give him credit for that there I think he's going to be a worrying proposition, you know, for for the second half of the season. I think, you know, you were one of the people who picked him out as a, you know, fairly likely championship contender come the end of the year. And I think, you know, if they can add that consistency, I do think I was a little bit cautious at the start of the season as to whether Pato was going to be able to put it all together. But the, I think the upside that we've seen over the first four races is just pretty spectacular. And I think that's going to take um, a lot of beating. But yeah, I think that kind of wraps up Texas for us. Um, there's no race this weekend, so we'll take this opportunity to have a breather after a mad three consecutive race weekends, which has been crazy, but enjoyable uh, and made even more so enjoyable by starting this podcast. So thanks, JR, for that. Don't worry. We'll be back next week, though, with arguably one of the stars of 2021 so far. So keep an eye out as to who that might be. We're going to leave you on a cliffhanger there. And that'll set us up nicely for Indianapolis in two weeks' time, the road course race, which now kind of officially opens the month of May at the Speedway. JR, how's your prep going for the for the 500? Are you feeling uh, ready or have you got more work to do? How's the training going and how's the preparation? Yeah, training's been good. And, um, you know, the prep prep is, you know, at this at this point, very much just up to the team. You know, been been chatting with everybody over the last couple of weeks. They've obviously had plenty going on just getting through these, these race weekends. So it was good to be out at the test uh, a couple weeks ago. I think I mentioned that on the last pod. Um, I have a couple of, I have a quick um, correction to make from my, our discussion about aero parts from the last podcast that actually no, no in Texas, boards at Texas. Yeah. That uh, they, the teams had decided after that they had tested them at Texas, the, the sort of extensions off the front of the, off the front of the, um, of the floor, but I guess decided that they were concerned that they would add too much downforce, which was an interesting bit of feedback to have just that that was, that that was the concern given the race that we ended up seeing, you know, that it was as hard as it was to, to sort of pass and, and all that anyway. But, um, and they also weren't running the diffuser strike. So really the only difference going into Texas was just the sort of reshaped underwing, underwing uh you know the hole in the front of the underwing but you could really see that as well couldn't you on the cars you could see it when when um they did quite a lot of close-ups of the crash in the second race you could really see how big that hole was next to the side pod couldn't you yeah and it's actually it's smaller now than it than it has been so that uh and you'll see it's it's even smaller again when they go back to road course trim 
So something for the listeners to look out for. I got a I got a quick note that um, one of the uh, officials from the IndyCar series was listening to our pod and and uh, gave a little bit of feedback on on a couple of those things going forward. So we know we've got some of the right listeners, um, you know, chiming in and excited to. But yeah, in terms of getting ready for getting getting ready for Indy, there's so much, so many different things to think about and as a driver, sometimes it's kind of nice to, there's, there's, there's certainly a benefit to just being in the swing of being in the car, like the full-time guys will be, but, um, being part-time, you know, has some advantages just in terms of being able to really take it all in and, and think about it as the weekend goes on, watching what's going on in Texas, talking to the team. Um, you know, we've definitely been, been chatting and, uh, building our sort of plan of attack. So ready to, ready to get back into race mode for sure. Yeah, Bordet was really happy with the pace of the car at Texas after, you know, I think you mentioned on the pod last week, quite a difficult preseason in terms of oval testing for the team. Um, not difficult in the sense that it's anything to worry about, but just it seemed like, you know, they're a little bit off and had a few things to work on. So yeah, I think that was one of the reasons why I said was so annoyed, let's say, as a polite word after the... Uh, <laughs> after the two incidents over the over the two races at Texas because he was so happy with what, what he had underneath him when they actually rolled off. So, you know, that was a, a bit of a disappointment for Seb. Um, another person, he's down 14th in the points now, which is amazing given how strong his start to the season was entering Texas and something that he'll be looking to rectify. But yeah, you'll have the the added benefit of uh, the unwavering support of all the podcast listeners at this 500. So <laughs> that obviously means, you know, that's going to be worth a few tenths, surely. Of course. No, definitely, yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Put that in my back pocket, heading to the speedway. I'll take whatever I can get. So, uh, yeah, ready to rock and roll. And, um, yeah, looking forward, to, looking forward to getting back in the seat. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this. Can't believe it's the fourth episode of the Races IndyCar podcast already. It feels like it's gone really quick, but that's what three races in a, in, in a row or four races and three race weekends in a row will do for you. Remember to give us, remember to give us a review on your favorite podcast platform of choice. And we'll see you next week with a special guest. And I'm still not going to tell you who that is. You're going to have to wait and find out. 